Lucky you. 36 pistols and golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Arnie's Army. Where we talk about golf. Sandy. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) Hey, Billy Regan, we are so thrilled. Today, we have a celebrity, and I don't mean just in golf, in so many areas. He's had such a life and has only lived half of it. I know he's got another half in front of him. I do. It's thrilled to have Billy Harmon on the podcast. Billy, so thrilled to have you here. I'm very, Wing very grateful We were originally members of Waikiki Guild. And so dad would let us come over play on Mondays. It was caddy day back then. And so I can remember maybe nine or 10 uh, playing on Mondays. Uh, when dad finished third in the open in 59, I was only eight. So I was upset that he didn't win. <laughs> I realized now him finishing third in the open at age 43 with six kids as a host pro might have been a greater feat than winning the Masters, to be honest with you. But so my memories kind of started then, I would say, uh, eight, nine years old. Eight, nine years old. And, and were you playing already? You were, you oh, yeah, were, I was playing. Yep. I can remember we would uh, go in and get a brown cow or something at the term, you know, and I realize now the bartender probably hated us because he had to go in the kitchen to get the ice cream. And stuff. Scoop of ice cream. <laughs> looking back on it, I bet he hated seeing the, the little Harmon kids come in there on Mondays, you know. You know, I remember talking to, to Jay Haas one time and he, he loves Wingfoot. Uh, Jay played in his first U.S. Open in 74. And he's the only guy that made the cut in the 74 Open, the 84 Open, the 97 PGA, and the 2006 Open, which is a pretty cool little tidbit. But he said the thing that always got him about Wingfoot was that when you were driving to the course, there wasn't one shot or one hole that scared you to death, you know, because there was, you could uh, swing at it. And, and a recovery shot at Wingfoot was a recovery shot because there really are no hazards, you know, to speak of. And you have to really hit a bad shot to get one out of bounds. And so uh, Wingfoot to me uh, allowed you to play golf. And if you were a real good player, it was more of a bogey course than a double bogey course. It would just kind of wear you out, you know, but um, there were no penalty shots. And so to me, it was uh, just golf. I saw one of the members the next morning and I apologized. I said, God, we kind of took over up there, you know. And the guy said, when my three guests got back to the cottage, they turned to me and said it was the two greatest hours they ever spent in golf. So I can imagine that. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting because um, the next week I went down to the tailor-made place here in Carlsbad to get fitted for clubs. And Scotty Scheffler was there. And I don't know Scotty. And I'm uh, just growing up in the family that I grew up in, I've, I've learned to leave celebrities alone. But I actually wanted to tell him the story of us being in that locker room and for him to imagine that his kids that aren't even born yet, 80 years from now, might sit in that locker room by their dad's locker and say, my dad won the masters. Cause you can't imagine that when you're a kid, you know, you can't imagine even what it meant to us. I mean, we got choked up about it, you know, and we ended up talking about dad and Wingfoot and everything. And Craig said something very interesting. I, I said, I have a picture of uh, dad played with Hogan the last round of the open in 59. 
And it's a picture taken probably from the front uh, right of the T. So it was Hogan and his follow through. You saw the clubhouse in the back was beautiful. And dad was there leaning on his club. I now know that dad shot 70 and beat Hogan by six shots, finished third, lost by two. And I tried to imagine any other club pro in the world that could have done that. Let's say they were on the last tee with uh, Tiger Woods with a chance to win the Open. And they were going to beat Tiger by six. And I thought about how comfortable he must have been, you know, to do that because he wasn't, he was 43 or four years old. He wasn't playing any tournaments. And Craig said something interesting. I'd never heard this. He said, well, dad must have thought he was one of them. Right. So when he played with Hogan or Snead or some of the better players, he knew that they were, you know, better than him for the most part. But he didn't think that if he played good, he couldn't beat them, you know. So he must have felt that I'm kind of one of them. He was story, one of them. He was, as it turned out. But a story that will uh, add to that is Craig Wood told me that when he hired dad, he asked my dad, what type of player you want to be? And he said, well, I want to be like you. And we called him Uncle Craig. And Uncle Craig said, uh, well, the way you hold on to the club and that snap hook you hit, you won't get out of Westchester County. <laughs> and so my dad, which was true, he said, well, I love the game. I'll do whatever it takes. And Craig Wood said, yeah, well, a lot of people say that, but when the improvement doesn't come right away, they'll retreat back to what feels good. And he said, your father got mad at me and said, I'll do what it takes. And so he did do what it took. And then I also have a photo in my, uh, office at the club of the very first uh, master's champions dinner it was called the organization meeting it's written on the on the and dad is uh, they've got all the champions and bobby jones and cliff roberts and dad is standing up and craig wood and a few other guys are kneeling down in this picture and craig just by coincidence was kneeling under dad so i said to dad one time did you ever needle uncle craig <laughs> about him telling you that you weren't going to be any good. Now you're at the champions dinner with him at Augusta. And dad said, yeah, I needled him. I, I uh, named my second son, Craig Wood Harmon, because had Craig Wood not told me the truth, I'd have never been any good. But you know, what's interesting about where you said that putt was, Greg Norman wasn't that far off that line. Yeah, dad Remember? was more behind the hole. Norman okay. was slightly more pin high. The, the putt yep. that Norman make you couldn't make one out of a hundred. How bad was that second shot he hit? It was. What would you say that was? He had a perfect drive as he was six irons, and he hit it in the middle of those bleachers. Yeah, and so it, it was unbelievably bad shot, really, because the bleachers had to be twenty yards to the right of the green. I would think at least. So it was 40 or 50 yards offline with a six iron, one of the great players ever. And he did it at Augusta in 86. Same thing at Augusta. Iron. Same yeah. thing. And so isn't that funny how um, you guys play? Water seeks its level, boy. If you, have a, uh, if you have a flaw in your swing or you have the shot, in Hogan's case, you know, the fear of the hook stuff, it's coming, boy. <laughs> the problem is you can almost feel it, you know? Yeah. So it's waiting there to trap you. Yeah, it is. I, I was listening to you talk about Steve Elkington, and he told you I have to hit three or four shots that yeah. I don't want to hit to win. The thing that is intriguing, there's a lot of intriguing things about Norman, but 
he's such an enigma to me because he's won 90 tournaments worldwide. So how can you win 90 tournaments and be a choke artist, right? That doesn't go together. No. There's no way you can win that many tournaments. Uh, when Butch worked for him, uh, Butch said something interesting. He said he didn't know how to gear down. So if Tiger had a tournament to win or Jack had a tournament to win, they knew how to shoot for the middle of greens. And, you know, you could write their name on the trophy if they had a one-shot lead with three to play. It was over with. Where Greg, he said he just, he always had just one gear, you know, and he didn't know how to, uh, to gear down or he didn't know how to who change his his plan with four or five holes left in a tournament when he had a chance to win. He was still trying to strangle the course. And so I think he's more of an enigma to me because you can't win 90 tournaments, professional tournaments and be a choker. And Mickelson did the same thing, right? I think that's the worst shot ever hit in, in a competition, that drive on, on 18, because you guys have been there more than I have, but in my lifetime, I never saw anybody carry a ball into 11 East on the fly. Now you got a little unlucky if the merchandise tent wasn't there, he wins the open. Yep. He's got a pretty easy shot from the, and every time I go to Wingfoot, I stand on that tee and I try to imagine the ball flight that got that ball into the 11th tee fairway on the fly. Knowing that if you miss, you can miss right, and chop it out in front of the green and the best wedge player, you know, supposedly probably going to have no more than an eight footer win the open, but he's going to a playoff. He had, you know, I've caddied in tournaments where, you know, Jay's had a one shot lead going the last hole. And I, in my mind, we have two chances to win the tournament. Now we can either win it on this hole or win in a playoff, but don't, <laughs> don't Loser. blow both chances by being uh, stupid, you know, but or 18, the first thing you think is like, don't go left. Don't go any, anywhere but left. Anybody in the world that's ever played there more than yeah. twice would know that. Yeah. Don't go left. And not only did he go left, he went 100 yards. Right. Yeah. So his miss, as we know, if he hits it out to the right, I know the rough was high, but he could chop a wedge down, hit the down slope, run at 30, 40 yards from the green. So if you look at where he was supposed to miss and where he missed, it was probably at least 100 yards, I would say. Between them. Wow. Unbelievable when you think about it. A guy that good. And I'll share an interesting story for the people that love the game. So Jay made the cut and he got paired with Johnny Miller the next day, who was a defending champ. I think he said he shot 78, which he said, by the way, wasn't that bad on that course, as you know, the massacre at Wingfoot. But I didn't play well. And he said, going back to my hotel, I realized that uh, two, I learned two important things. First thing was that Johnny Miller didn't care about me. You know, I cared about impressing Johnny Miller. He was a defending champ and all that stuff. And the second thing was more important is that he wasn't supposed to care about me. I need to care about me. So we'll fast forward to the next year at Medina in 75. Jay's playing very good. I think he's within the top 15 going to the third round. And he gets paired with Nichols. So one year later, he gets to uh, and Jack shot 75 and Jay shot 72. And so uh, very interesting how some people get it, whatever it is. But this kid at 19 years old figured this out. And one year later, 
you know, beat Jack Nicholas in the round that he played with him. And I think that's the interesting thing about good players is <clears throat> with all this information and track man and forces and ground forces and obliques and, you know, engaging the glutes and stuff. And we can measure all this stuff, but we couldn't measure how that kid figured out going down the Hutchison Parkway what he did wrong that day, right? No. So how do you, they say you can explain it to them, but you can't comprehend it for them? Yeah, you can't share, you can't really share experiences. And so I look at, I'm swing theoried out per, personally, but I'm so interested in the people that play and why they're good, you know, because if the three of us five or six years ago went to Augusta and we sat in the bleachers on the range, we didn't know who anybody was. Okay. Now we've all been around golf our whole lives, we've seen it. And we had to figure out who the number one player in the world was. Not one of us would have said Jordan Speed. Right? Not even close. In fact, he might not have been in the top 50, just watching his swing and everything. So, and as you alluded to, you know, Scotty Scheffler. And so the kind of goes back to what Craig said about that. He thought he was one of them. You know, I made it this far with the great Sam Snead. I'm going to stick to my game plan. So he went back and put the driver back at the one iron. One iron, nine iron, 20 feet. And he said, Sam played the most beautiful pitch shot you ever saw about three feet from the hole. And back then they played stymies. And by sheer luck, my dad missed his putt and it left Snead a stymie. He couldn't putt at the hole. So I said, what, what would you do in that instance? Uh, you know, just concede a half. He said, no, you got to make the great Sam Snead put it out sideways and then give it to him. Just to, <laughs> you got you to embarrass him a little bit. <clears throat> so they got to the 42nd hole. This is another, he must've felt like he was one of them stories. So they both had about 25 footers. Snead was getting ready to putt. And my dad says, I don't think you're away. Now, how many guys would do that? <laughs> Club pros, you know? And Snead says, well, why do I have to believe you? And he said, well, you don't. Let's get a referee. So a referee came out and got a rope and uh, measured it. And dad was away by six inches. And dad made it and uh, Snead missed. And when he congratulated my dad, excuse my language, but he said, you hung my ass with that rope. <laughs> <laughs> now, many years later, I was at Bob Golby's uh, farmhouse in Belleville, Illinois. And I'd gotten in late at night. I was driving from Colonial to Muirfield to Caddy for Jay. And he said, I'll leave the door open for you. Here's where your room is and stuff. And I go down and have breakfast and Sam Sneed's there. Sneed's staying with Bob. So now I'm sitting there. My dad could embellish stories pretty good. So I always kind of took some of them. He was a great storyteller. So the fact is he did beat him in 42 holes. So there was a, had to be some of it was true. So I wanted to figure out if I could get Sneed's version of the story without going, Hey, my dad beat you, you know, and PGA, <laughs> you know, and, uh, <clears throat> so I said, uh, you know, Mr. Sneed, I, you know, my dad used to talk about the match he had with the Norwood Hills. And, you know, he, he said how lucky he was, you know, he laid you the stymie. I kind of buttered him up a little bit, you know, and he immediately said he was the luckiest SOB. He told the exact story that dad told. It was unbelievable. He said, your dad shot 63 or four. He was six up. He went through the whole thing. 
And then he said he hung my ass with that rope on the 42nd hole. So the story was, and you know what? It still bothered Snead when he was telling me the story. He said he was the luckiest SOB. You know, nowadays they they have so many, so much information. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's good. I, I think, you know, the Palmers and the Gary Players and the Trevinos and the Caspers and the Nicholases, I mean, they, you know, they'd get a tip every now and then from somebody, but they own their own swing. It was theirs. It wasn't somebody else's. It wasn't some guy looking at track man who couldn't break 85 telling him what to do. And I'm not knocking all those guys, by the way, but I'm just not convinced that the great players today are better than the great players of yesterday. There's more good players for sure. No doubt about that. But the great ones, I don't know. Let's throw Tiger out of the, the equation right now, but who's playing today that would back Palmer off or Gary Player or Lee Trevino or Billy Casper? Or they'd be afraid to get on the tee with them. I don't think too many. Raymond Floyd, even. Do you think Raymond yeah. would back off one of these guys with that funny looking swing? Tom Watson, you know? So I think it's interesting, the, but I think all of those guys owned their game. They owned it. It was them. Remember the guy, Mike Donald, who almost won the Open at Medina? Yep. Yes. He told me a story recently, which is great. He's, he lost his game and playing the nationwide tour, I think they called it. And he was playing with a guy late in the year who was going to finish high enough to get his card. So he said to Mike, uh, you know, what do I need to do on tour? He said, well, at some point you're going to have to shoot 67 on Sunday playing with Norman or Chevy or Raymond Floyd or Jack or somebody. Guy goes, ah, I'm not intimidated by anybody. I play my own game. And yeah, okay, good. <laughs> go get him so of course the guy goes out and misses his cart and uh he sees mike the next year and he says you know you were right so i knew i was right but you didn't know what i was actually telling you you had no idea what i was telling you so you're going to go out on tour and you're going to walk on the range and ernie Els is going to be sitting there talking to phil and norman and nick price and lanny watkins you see and they all know each other and they're comfortable they played with each other 500 times. They played this tournament 20 times. And you walk on and you, you are less than zero to these people. They don't know you. They don't care about you. You are not one of them until you play with them on Sunday and shoot 66 or 7. He said, I remember doing it. I think he said at Westchester, playing with uh, Floyd and maybe uh, Norman. And the next week I walked on the tee and Raymond Floyd turned to me and said, hey, Mike, how you doing? So I did want to ask you about two guys in that particular line, uh, Zalatoris and Cam Young, who've come up pretty quickly, right? No, I think that they, they didn't have that. I think that they, they both had that inner arrogance. I don't mean that in a bad way, because right. they certainly played that way. Uh, now I watched Cam, you know, last year played so well in the majors. He never looked like the moment was too big for him and certainly not Zalatoris. So, you know, Zalatoris played good at Winkfoot when he was on the yes. Corn Ferry Tour. I think he finished fifth or sixth in 2020. And, but that's the part that I think is hard to teach. You know, Cam, Cam Young, you know, Sleepy Hollow kid, I guess. Yeah. He walks around like, uh, I'm good. He could have won the Open at St. Andrews. Yep. He could easily won that open. He was playing with Cameron Smith the last round. I How think. does Smith make four on the road hole behind the bunker? There you go. You know, so, um, and that's also interesting. Uh, you know, if he makes five or six, Cam Young wins the British Open, maybe. 
or Rory. I remember asking Bob Golby one time, Bob finished second at uh, Open Hills uh, to Littler and player beat him at Aronimic by a shot. And I said to Bob, what, what's your memory of uh, Open Hills? Did you have a chance? He says, well, Littler, I think 282 once over par one. He said, well, Littler shot 35 at back nine. Sometimes the guy shoots 37 and the other guy wins, you know? <laughs> Because 37 is not a bad score if you played the back nine at Linkfoot in the open, would it be? It wouldn't be choking. And he said, Gary at Aronimic uh, missed 10 greens and got it up and in 10 out of 10 times. He said, sometimes a guy gets up and in eight out of 10 and the other guy wins. So as you said, he didn't have to get that up and down for four, right? Right. And so there's such a confluence of events that can go into winning a tournament. And a yeah. lot of the times it's not... You know, Cam didn't lose that. Uh, Young didn't lose that tournament. Smith won it, you know. Yeah, I don't even and, think Rory lost it. I think Rory no. played well. They weren't going in. No, but he missed every putt. Your dad he may did. win win the uh, Open in Wingfoot if uh, Billy Casper doesn't have 27 putts around, right? You know, so you, but that's the beauty of the game is you can't play defense, you know. Um, I remember when Tiger won the, the Masters in 2019 and they compared it to Jack in 86. I said, there's no comparison. Jack played the last 10 holes in seven under with a bogey. Tiger hit the back nine, two shots back with the best players in the world. He played the back nine and one under and they all parted like the Red Sea, which they did, by the way. Yep. Every one of them parted. They handed them the tournament. I'm not taking it away from Tiger. Because once he saw those guys hitting the ball in the water on 12, walking down the 11th fairway, he turned it into, you guys said you wanted a piece of me, now you're going to get it. I'm relatively healthy. You like that injured tiger? I'm not injured right now. <laughs> and he, from there, played beautifully. But they all just folded. Every one of them. It was kind of weird. Good players, too. Guys that were good. Yeah, that was Jack some back nine. Jack didn't Memphis. shoot 35 being two shots back and win. He shot 30. He bogeyed 12, 12, right? That's exactly 12, right. Yeah. I, in fact, Jay played with him on Saturday. I caddied for Jay. And this is my best caddy story. So Jay was playing good Sunday. And we got to, uh, we, yeah, we, we got to 15, uh, three shots back. We're ahead of the leaders. We're ahead of Jack by a couple <laughs> holes. And it's hard to believe it had wooden clubs back then because it doesn't seem that long ago when, you know, in a couple months, we're going to see all the highlights of Jack winning and stuff. They, they didn't have metal wood. So on Tuesday, there was a sprinkler out on 15. It was 234 to the front. And Jay said to me, well, if we're not ahead of that, we're not going for it. He liked to make decisions because he couldn't overpower a course. So he had to kind of chart his way. He said, I can't afford to make stupid sixes on these holes. I have to do some, I have to figure out a way to get it done differently. So I think he's five under for the round, just hitting it good. And Jay was good. He could hit the ball right in the middle of the club face almost every time. And so he hits a nice drive, boy, and I'm looking for this sprinkler because I want to send him. You never know. You make eagle, right? You just don't know. And uh, ah, we get there, and he's seven yards behind the – have you guys heard this story? Nope. It's pretty funny. So – uh, back then I, I was running pretty good. I was orbiting the universe, I'd say. And uh, I wanted him to go. And my dad used to tell me that you gamble when you're swinging good, not when you're swinging bad. How about that little tidbit? 
Jay was really swinging good. And it was warm out and hit 241 to the front, which is a lot, you know, in those days. And he says, how far do we got? And I lied. I lied. I took the seven yards off. I said, you got 234, pins on 16. Oh, that's a perfect three foot. So as soon as he says it, I go, what the hell am I doing here? It's Sunday of Augusta. I've just given him the wrong yardage over water. You got to be the dumbest guy that ever lived. So now I'm starting to think, I got to get out of this. I got to say, I added and subtracted. I got, you know, I got confused with the, you know, I didn't get a good uh, upbringing there. I own a grammar school. You're good at math. As I'm trying to figure out how am I going to stop them, the, the handheld CVS camera is running behind us. They're going to show this shot live. So now I'm it's getting really, better. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, God. So now you guys caddy, so you understand this. So I'm sitting out there going, what am, I, what am I doing? You know, this is all happening in 20 seconds. You know, my life is going in front of me. And by now he's over the ball. So I said, well, here we go, boy. You know, and he hit the most beautiful shot I think I've ever seen him hit. This big high draw, and it was there the whole way. And when he started his downswing, I think I was screaming, get up, you know. <laughs> and uh, he goes, oh, no, that's there. <laughs> well, I forgot <laughs> to tell you about that seven I got here in my caddy bib. My dad <laughs> called it the white tuxedo. And uh, he had a beautiful shot, about 20 feet, 15 feet. So he birdied part in, I think finished fifth, maybe shot 66 or seven the last round. Good tournament, you know, played with Jack, top five in a major. We're all pretty happy afterwards. So the next week was Hilton Head. He says, I'll meet you there at seven o'clock on Tuesday. I said, fine. Uh, there seven o'clock on Tuesday, he hated practice rounds. It was funny, Jay hated practice rounds. And he said, ah, let's just go. I don't even want to hit balls. Let's get this over with. So being a recovering Catholic, <laughs> knowing all about confessions, you know, <laughs> we're walking down the first fairway and I, I'm thinking, you know, I got to kind of tell them what I did there on 15. It's I don't know, it's kind of bugging me, even though it turned out right, it wasn't the right thing to do. So I said, Jay, I got a confession to make. And he said, what, you gave me the wrong yardage on 15 on Sunday? <laughs> he knew it. He said, that was actually good caddy. And he said, back to your dad's thing, you gamble when you're swinging good. I was actually going to consider going for it anyway. So that was really good caddy, because that's what I wanted to hear. Let's go for it. So I said, well, that's great, you know, really good. But uh, hypothetically, what would have happened if you'd have necked it in the middle of the lake or drop kicked it? Said I wouldn't have asked you to be at Hilton Head at seven o'clock on Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my dumbest uh, caddy story ever that turned out good because he was good, not because I was good. And that's when I give him the Claude Harmon story. One time he changed my grip and I said, well, daddy, it doesn't feel good. His exact words were, you appear to be a bright young man. He didn't say I was. And uh, he asked me if I knew what an inanimate object was. And I said, I think so. And he asked me if the ball was inanimate. And I said, yes. Club inanimate, yes. He said, well, those two things don't care about your feelings. <laughs> that the downswing is not an encounter group <laughs> between your feelings. And that the ball is going to go pretty much where the club face tells it. And... 
the grip influences the club face dramatically. So I think most players who start off with bad grips uh, will struggle uh, with golf. And funny, I had a conversation with Bones about six weeks ago. I've never met Justin Thomas, so I don't know him from Adam. He couldn't pick me out of the lineup. And I said, as a fan, just watching him, I think he has a very interesting issue in the sense that I don't believe in any sense of the world that he's a choker. I said, I think he wants to win so bad. And his desire to win and his desire to be successful is so strong that he has a hard time calming down on Sundays. And he doesn't seem to let the game come to him, let's say, or the round come to him. And Bones agreed. He said he, he's very hard on himself. I have a funny story. Um, my brother Dick was working with Lanny Watkins. And uh, my dad was at Lockenbar where Butch was. And Lockenbar in Houston is very close to the airport. So Lanny flew down. Dick picked him up. And Lockenbar is maybe 10 minutes away. So they went to work at Lockenbar, but dad was watching Dick give Lanny a lesson. And Dick said it was the most nervous he's ever been because usually it was, we were watching dad give a good player lesson. And uh, he said, dad sat there for two or three hours, never said a word, which he thought was nice. And uh, Lanny, when you watched him in person was unusually good. He wasn't just good, he was unusually good. Uh, his ball striking capabilities were really, really very, very impressive. And he had a great session and they went in for lunch and uh, Lanny turned, uh, my dad turned to Lanny and he said, you know, I don't, I only have two things to tell you. And Lanny kind of perked up and he said, uh, first thing I do is make sure I get my clubs and myself to the tee on time. <laughs> and the second thing I would do is I'd change my route to the bank every Monday so you don't get robbed. <laughs> but what I'm really curious about is why are you taking lessons from Dick? He said, because your ball comes out like it's delivered from a Remington rifle and Dick's ball comes out like it's delivered by a seed gun going 360 degrees all over the course. <laughs> so it took that about three hours to get the harpoon into Dick after he buttered Lanny up, but his point was he wouldn't have changed anything with Lanny Watkins swing, even though it had a lot of individual characteristics, very low hands, incredibly fast tempo. Uh, if you ever look at Lanny's swing in slow motion, go to YouTube, very odd uh, impact position with his left arm bent and his left wrist cupped a little bit like uh, Lee Westwood. These were all things that dad probably would not have looked at in a model swing, but dad looked at the ball and the ball liked Lanny's swing, so he wouldn't have changed anything. And oddly enough, um, uh, Wingfoot doesn't really have a hole like that, where Jay Haas, who loves Wingfoot, and is the only guy who uh, made the cut in the 74, 84, 2006 Open and the 97 PGA, so spanning four decades, he made cuts. He said, the funny thing about Wingfoot is when you're driving to the course, there really isn't one shot that scares you to death. He said, maybe the, the shot on number three West, you know, having to hit a shot that, but he said, by and large, you don't drive there choking about a certain hole. 
it just kind of it's a 15 round heavyweight fighter and eight down below uh you know Sheffler got very lucky when that ball went in the oh, hole oh. that thing was going 15 20 oh, feet oh, in the oh. hole and so what happens if that doesn't go in that's the three well, or four 15, person 20 feet and now he's going to have have one of those putts for you know the art of two putting um, having said that, I thought he had perhaps the greatest short game week I've ever seen in my life that week for, for four days, which is uh, a real compliment to him because people with short, great short games, in my view, have to have great nerves. I remember Jack hit a one iron on 13 on Saturday. Uh, it's funny how stupid I can be at times. Pin was over in the right and he hit this high towering one iron maybe six feet right of the hole but at that time you wrongly assumed that jack was going to always birdie 13 and 15 is that that was an automatic and his ball literally landed one or two feet short of being perfect in a kickback in the in the creek Ray's creek and i don't know why in my infinite wisdom i turned to jay and i said well i guess Jack can't go like he used to. <laughs> and Jay turned to me and he said, well, for one, that was a pretty damn good shot. You know, that wasn't like he exactly choked on that shot. And then 24 hours later, when he won, Jay said to me, he says, please tell me when you think I'm finished. <laughs> <laughs> so he had remembered what I had said on yeah. 13, you know, and he put it kind of in the back pocket to bring it out at the right time. But he said, please let me know when you think I'm finished. <laughs> But there was another year, I think he uh, started out six shots back and went out in 31. And um, he had a beautiful drive on number 10. And uh, he was kind of racing off the tee like secretariat. And I got thinking, boy, I got to slow him down a little bit here because we, uh, we got some water to cross coming up. <laughs> and... You know, when you're caddying and you're in the middle of these things, it's not like you have a uh, something prepared because you're human, too. And in my case, you know, his uncle won the Masters and my dad won the Masters. So this is a pretty special two hours that we're about to encounter. And so I caught up to him and I, in my infinite wisdom, as I was going to be Bob Rotella before Bob Rotella. And I said, you know, Jay, when you were a kid and. You were at Little St. Clair Country Club in Belleville, Illinois, and you were putting on the putting green, waiting for your mom to pick you up, you know. As the sun was going down, you had a putt to win the Masters or putt to win the Open. And I said, you know, we're kind of here right now. You know, we just have to make some good decisions and so on and so forth. And Jay said, well, that's a great story, Bill, but the fact of the matter is, is I'm not on the putting green at St. Clair Country Club in Belleville, and I'm not waiting for my mother to pick me up. I'm on the back nine on Sunday, and you couldn't get a grease needle up my fanny with a sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, this was the reaction both of us had. We both laughed. It was a very funny interchange. And what I really liked about it was uh, I liked his honesty about that just getting out of the line of play how important that is when you're on a green well when you're caddy, of course if you're playing in a threesome 
you know, you have to be totally aware of where every other player is at all points, even just on the fairways and stuff. So you're never kind of either in their line or sight or, you know, where they can see you in their peripheral vision. Uh, I remember caddying one time at Hilton Head and Jay was playing with Gary Pyre. And we were on the sixth hole and, and Jay hit first, hit an iron shot. We were maybe 10 yards behind Gary and to the left of him. And so I raced up to get the divot. And as I was coming back, Gary was already over his ball. <laughs> and he looked at the hole and he, out of his peripheral vision, could see me. And he stopped. And uh, in all fairness to Gary, he went back to his bag and acted like he was wiping off his grip. But basically, I had disrupted his routine. And uh, walking up to the green, I apologized. I said, I'm sorry, I, I don't have an excuse. I know better. And his exact response was, uh, no problem. I don't expect everything to be perfect. Funny thing, you know, if you watch tournaments on TV, a lot of times a player will hit out of the bunker. And while that player's caddy is raking the bunker, uh, one of the other caddies will clean the ball for him. Right. And for some reason, Ballesteros would never let you clean his golf ball. <laughs> this was one of those quirks. So once we knew that, we would, the, the two caddies, obviously, that weren't with uh, Seve, we would joke on the first hole, you know, let's make sure at all points we go up and ask if, you know, please, Mr. Ballesteros, can we have the honor of cleaning your golf ball? <laughs> because we knew that he was going to kind of blow us off, you know. So we actually would do it on purpose to have fun with it, you know. And so, you know, I'd say to the other caddy, all right, it's your turn this whole, you know. <laughs> so we were actually doing it on purpose to bother him a little bit. And every time he waved you off, every single time he waved you off. That's a nice and version. After a while, he waved shots. you off with a little bit of uh, venom in it, I'd say, yeah. in the wave. But we were doing it on purpose just for that reason. Because <laughs> Chevy had a reputation, um, I'm not going to say of cheating, but they, he was the European tour at one point. He was the Arnold Palmer, let's say, of the European tour. And they felt that he could intimidate uh, the rules officials. There are some people that thought that Arnold could do it in his heyday. You know, the drop he got at 12 years ago, you know, when he beat Venturi by a shot. Uh, still, not too many people understand that. But Do you think you could have ever caddied for your father or would that have been uh No, that would have been easy. Because you wouldn't have to tell them anything. The caddies, the, the players never asked the caddies anything. And they didn't have yardages. They didn't have pen sheets. And so, you know, basically you were just toting the bag. Uh, I don't think. Um, I, I tell you, I never heard Jack Nicholas ask a caddy a thing other than the yardage, the yardage numbers. In the, in the years I caddied, when he had Angelo, I never heard him discuss a club selection. Um, uh, there's a very famous video, I think it's 76, the year he made the big putt at uh, 16, uh, the, yep. the Weisskopf Miller uh, Masters. And it's about a two-minute video of him trying to figure out what club to hit on uh, 15. And I don't think he ever asked Willie Peterson one thing. He was doing all of his own homework. So, and as good as you might caddy, um, 
and I say this, and this bothers tour caddies a little bit, but I say a good a good caddy and a bad player is still a bad player. Okay. Uh, a good player and a bad caddy is still a good player. <laughs> right. Now, if you happen to be both, you might be able to help a little bit. Right. But I don't care how good you caddy. If your player can't play, it doesn't make any difference. Zero, zip, nada. And that was kind of fun because um, he was tied for the lead going to the last round with his friend and college teammate, Curtis Strange. So it was just the two of them in the last group. And it was interesting. They hardly talked at all. And uh, Jay ended up beating him that day. There was a funny story there. Uh, I had helped Curtis with his bunker game, giving him my dad's uh, technique and systems. And on, I think it was the 13th hole, it was a long par three and, the, and there was water left, but the pin was in the right and he missed it in the right bunker. And he didn't have much green to work with. And I remember like it was yesterday, I was thinking, isn't this something? This guy's going to use this technique that I taught him of my dad end up beating <laughs> beating us in this tournament, you know. And he played the most beautiful bunker shot. And Curtis and I were good friends and still to this day, very good friends. And he comes out of the bunker and I'm kind of staring at him because I can't believe that this is, you know, in the back of my mind, this might end you up. You used that against me. Yeah. You know, going to end up costing Jay the tournament. And Curtis makes eye contact with me and smiles and gives me the finger. <laughs> <laughs> and some of the guys that learned the game on their own, they played good for a longer time because they didn't have all the information and they kind of owned their swing. You know, I was looking for some reason, I, I, I was thinking about something different in my swing recently. And uh, so I thought of a guy who might have done what I thought I was working on with Julius Boros. You know, and so in our growing up, if you went and watched Boros play at uh, Westchester or something, you would say, man, that was a beautiful swing, you know. No one ever puts Julius Boros's swing on YouTube. So why would you put swings up on YouTube of people that are marginal professionals and you've got Bernhard Langers and Boros and guys Middlecoff, I think, won 38 tournaments and three majors at a big dip, but why don't you study his swing? Why are you studying? Why are we studying swings that uh, are just aesthetically good looking, but they don't necessarily produce under pressure? Because that's what a good swing is, one that produces yeah. under duress. Well, I think that, you know, I think dad had Hogan's secret right. He said his secret was the same as every other good player's secret. He knew his own swing. Nobody ever swung like Hogan. But most players don't know what they're doing. They tell you that they're doing this, and then you look at the video, and they're not doing it. You know, Bob Golby, when he won the Masters in 1968, I've spent hours with Bob, uh, one of the great storytellers of all time. And I said, Do you, can you remember what your swing thought was when you won the Masters? He said, oh, yeah, are you kidding he said, I missed a cut at Greensboro, so I got down there on Saturday, and I couldn't hit it. I was hooking everything. And he said, Sunday afternoon, I was hitting balls. And he said, I always felt I swung too far inside out. And the more I swung inside out, the more I hooked it. And 
subconsciously, the more the ball went left, the more I swung to the right, which made it hook even more. And he said, my swing thought was I was trying to hit my left knee with my left hand on the downswing. So if you swing inside out, the hand would be going away from your body. And, and so that was his swing thought. And he said, every shot I hit that week, he said, it was unbelievable. I'd look up and it would just be the prettiest, you know, soft draw. He felt like he was coming right over the top of the ball. Now, he wasn't hitting his left knee with his left hand, but that's what he thought he was doing. Right. And so a lot of times the elite players, back to Claude's theory on this stuff, and my brother Dick took it one step further. He used to say that great players are one swing thought away from shooting 64. They don't need swing overhauls. If Michelle Wee never had another lesson from the day that she almost made the cut at age 13 in the Hawaiian Open, would she not have been better? And I think we all know the answer to that. Just oh, had yeah. someone that tweaked her, said, oh, you got the ball back too far, or you know, your stance is too open. You know, you're going to take that swing and you're going to overhaul it and redo it. Unbelievable. Most mismanaged athlete in the history of my lifetime. I remember my brother Craig worked for worked with uh, Jeff Sloman. I always joke he worked for Sloman since he was this high. Well, Jeff's always been this high. He's <laughs> about five foot four. And I was working for Craig at Oak Hill, where Jeff is from. Rochester, New York is a phenomenal golf town, just incredible golf town. And Jeff wins a PGA in 1988, I think, at Oak Tree. And Phone is ringing off the hook. Craig was his teacher, his mentor, and everything. And the local sports writer said, boy, your life is going to change, Craig. And Craig says, no, my life isn't going to change one bit. Jeff Sullivan's life is going to change. I've got a ladies' clinic tomorrow at 9 o'clock. This will have zero effect on my life. The only effect on my life that it will have is I'll get to see Jeff Sullivan's life improve. Well, that was a very, very, very cool way of looking at it. Craig wasn't teaching to make himself look good. He was teaching to change Jeff Sluman's life. And so I, I have adopted that thing that teaching isn't about me. It's about the student. Through osmosis, it was transferred to us that, you know, you teach these players and it's a great thrill to teach them. It's a privilege to teach them. And then you know, when Dave Marr won the, the PGA, I was sitting in our den. Not sure, maybe 65, is that one? And I remember my mother and father crying. And as a kid, you don't really see your parents cry much, you know. Uh, I don't think he was crying because it made him look good. He cried because he got to participate in something pretty special, you know. Which is kind of unusual these days. Because now we've got... All the teachers are like Tarzan, you know, when their player plays good, they're right there. But when they miss four straight cuts, they don't seem to jump up in front of the cameras readily. Wing foot in 2020. The ball was running forever. The course actually played short. And only one guy broke part. But my first day, I was a, a spotter on four west. This sounds kind of crazy. I was on the right side of the fairway, and I never realized, looking back to the tee, how downhill that tee shot was. It never dawned on me when I was playing the hole, because it was always a drive and a four iron or something. And these guys were hitting drive and sand wedges. 
to four four west from 480 yards. Unbelievable. You know, they're hitting short irons to number nine, 600 yards. And um, only one guy broke par. And and so, and I think six over might have been in the top 10, by the way. And, but that's a joke to hit a drive in a nine iron to a 600 yard par five. And that's not yeah. right. I don't care how big you are and all that stuff. That's that's not golf. The game shouldn't be this easy. You mentioned Bay Hill. I think of it's 16, right? The short par five? Yes. I always think of Payne Stewart because that was his house behind the green. That's correct. You must have some stories with Payne Stewart. I for, I was fortunate enough to get played with him on a Monday pro-am one time down here in Miami. That was uh, just pure luck. He had right? kind of a throwback swing. You know, he was a big... He was a swinger, not a hitter, lifted his left heel, didn't do any of the modern stuff. <clears throat> uh, but Payne, Payne was a winner. You know, he was a guy that, you know, there's an expression at that level, golf swings don't win tournaments, people win tournaments. You know, and so he won three majors. You know, when he got into the hunt, he was a show off, you know, by the way he dressed and everything. And show offs usually do better you know, when the, when the, the bright lights of the stage hit him. So he was an interesting character. You know, early on, he wasn't very well liked. I didn't know many players that liked him. He could be kind of acidic. I think towards the end of his career, he mellowed quite a bit. Um, my only real, uh, I had kind of quit caddying by the time he became real good, but we were playing with him at, at Abilene, the legit classic so this is a story that comes to mind and he drove it in the left rough on the 18th hole and he had tree trouble um there weren't a lot of uh, leaves there were just these branches and he kept taking these practice swings and the it really inhibited his backswing and you guys play enough let's say there's a, a limb that makes you shorten your backswing 50 percent you know and you take 20 practice swings and 20 practice swings and when you when it finally comes to the ball you hit the limb and your your swing you do it almost every <laughs> single time yeah he hit the limb in his swing and it directed the club and he whiffed it and without missing a beat he screamed as loud as he could strike one <laughs> 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 and so i never forgot that when you're Paul Tesori, catting for Webb Simpson or Cam Young. So this week you're in Texas at the Valero Open. Next week is the Masters. Yeah. How's that like? Do, I mean, some of these guys have net jets. Do you get invited on the jet? Do you have to get to the place? Well, there were no call? net jets. Right. Net jets when I when I was out there, um, <clears throat> we just had Robin and I had our big Harmon Recovery fundraiser last week, and uh, at our little party the night before the golf we had uh julie inkster jay uh billy andrade tom percher and joe durant did a little q a and uh jay jay mentioned sarcastically that uh you know it was very difficult early on when he started playing the tour in the, in the early seventies, you know, when the jet showed up about 15 minutes late and the champagne wasn't quite chilled properly on the flight home after missing the cut, of course he was being sarcastic because <laughs> it wasn't that way back when they started. And uh, my question to them was, I always like to ask questions that they haven't heard before. 
because you know these guys have been playing and Julie have been playing competitive golf 40 50 years and I asked them what their lowest point was when they knew that they weren't good enough anymore because they all go through it by the way you know we're talking about Justin Thomas who you know if he finishes 15th we think he's had a bad week because they've all gone through it and so it was very interesting listening to you know in the middle of a slump uh how down they got and everything and so julie inksters she went first and hers was fantastic she talked about you know she'd won three u.s amateurs in a row i believe she was uh, uh but she was a mother back then there were no daycare centers and she was playing bad and she said just think of this i was a bad mom a bad wife and a bad golfer all at the same time. And and it was so enlightening because she kind of uncovered herself. And it was very interesting listening to these people when they were going bad. So uh, asking me if I ever got on a net jet from the Valero tournament. No, we drove through the night, uh, unfortunately, with some help, probably. And but you know back then that was kind of the fun of it to me. I I look back on uh, I think we all look back on days in our in our lives when we had nothing but we didn't know any different. So you just get it done. And so I I look back in the caddy days when I started. We didn't make any money. Nobody really had any money. But we all took care of each other and we traveled together. And and I don't. Uh, I thought it was the time of my life. It's like the baseball players today. I, I don't understand how they get tired. They basically stand still for a whole game, sit on the bench half the game, and run 90 feet every now and then. I spent a, a, an evening one time with Koufax. He was my only real sports hero I ever had. I don't know why. I uh, wasn't a Yankee fan. I was a Dodger fan, Brooklyn Dodger fan. And Koufax was a guy, and I ended up being at an outing, and I had dinner with him. And uh, I said, you know, I, I'm a, I love baseball. And I said, you know, your last two years, you threw 54 complete games his last two seasons. Oh. 54. I think Scherzer, your guy for the Mets now, might have a total of 20 in his career. In his career. Koufax pitched one year, 326 innings with 372 strikeouts. That's like That's two years for, for these guys. That's now. correct. And he was great. He says, listen, uh, nowadays they pay the young, young pitchers so much money. You have to, you have to protect your investment. Their product. And I were the first people that ever held out for a hundred thousand a piece. So, but he said, we had an unwritten rule. If you were leading a game, they wouldn't take you out. So I could be up six, five in the fifth inning and they would let you try to win that game. So he, he wasn't in any way, shape or form, you know, that these kids aren't this, that, whatever. But to your point, Bill, um, it is interesting what makes these new golfers tired. Bob Golby had a three-year stretch where he played 39, 39, and 42 tournaments. Wow. And now if they play, well, God, I got to play these three FedEx Cups in a row, you know. Right. That's terrible for $25 million a tournament. God, I can, that's hard. You know, when I caddied for Mike Gilmore the last round of the uh, U.S. Open in 2020 when he was a, a marker, he played with Abraham Ancher. And I thought Abraham Ancher was one of the coolest guys I ever met in my life. I loved him. Terrific guy. 
unbelievably good guy. So just because he goes to live, that's going to wipe out my memory of those 18 holes? No, doesn't. He's a good guy. You know? What I remember about him is the prior two years, he was always on that leaderboard that NBC yes, he or CBS would put up there. The guy was just pesky. He's, he was there. He's unbelievably pesky with a, a fantastic short game. So he he can and he cuts it, which is interesting because my dad had this kind of figured out years ago. They everyone used to say Augusta was a hooker's course, and he said, Yeah, but all the trouble's on the left. <laughs> Demerit was a fader, he won three. Nicholas was a fader, he won six. You know, so this notion that you have to hook the ball at Augusta, but almost every hole, jail is on the left. The back injury of Zal Torres, there's other players that have had this. I see that um, Berger, he lives about yeah. a mile from me. I see yeah. him. He's trying to get back from the back injury. And now I see this new friend of ours, Brandon Matthews. He pulled out of the tournament this week, back injury. What about that? Well, um, what I know about physical fitness would not fit into a thimble. So I can't say that I have a qualified opinion on it. But I have a son who uh, runs a fitness center at Castle Pines and outside of Denver. And I asked him one time, I said, as you know, your dad knows nothing about this stuff. But if you put a Ferrari engine into a Volkswagen body, and you didn't fortify the foundation of the Volkswagen, would it work? And he said, of course not. So I think, I believe that physical fitness kind of hit golf late. And for many years, the players were guinea pigs to what was right and what was wrong. Because I always thought physical fitness should keep you from being injured. That would be my guess. So I wonder if these kids got too big, too strong, too fast for the human body to, and then most people will tell you that um, the body and the golf swing are very unnatural things. They don't really go together. And so I don't really know, but all I know is that the, the players from when we grew up weren't injured like this, none of them really. And now we get all these young guys injured in, uh, Throughout sports. I'm not too sure that my analogy is wrong about the Ferrari and the Volkswagen body. And uh, uh, and a lot of people want to say the inverted C, but there were a lot of great players that had the inverted C that didn't get injured. I never had a back problem in my life, and I grew up in that era. In fact, I played better doing that stuff. <laughs> and so I think maybe some people don't have good backs, maybe. But I'm not uh, I'm not sold on uh, that the body can handle all this speed in, in the quarter of a second that the downswing occurs. From the time you start down to impact is a quarter of a second, and a guy's generating 120 miles an hour clubhead speed in a quarter of a second. I don't know enough about it, but it seems to me there's something that's not right there. How about but how about that event in what four years has become almost a premier women's amateur golf tournament in the world? Where who gets it's more? so well it's so well thought of. I mean, they they qualify a champions retreat, but 
they do not deprive any of them for a round at Augusta, whether they make the cut or and, not. I and think I that's can't just wait great. to watch it today, to be honest with you. I, yeah. I've loved watching it. And I think about how fortunate I've been to walk the fairways as a caddy. Uh, obviously, to have a dad that won, but to play there like I have played there a few times. And now to see these ladies playing, uh, it's just incredible what they've done. And, and, and I love watching it. And the one thing about the female players and the, the ones on the LPGA Tour, they're uncanny straight hitters. Unbelievable, the quality of their golf. I think a few years ago, they had their PGA Championship at Westchester Country Club. And they tore it up because they hit it straight, you see. That's not a tight course for them. So I think that as we watch the future of the game today, uh, their play is incredible how good they are. And to see them do it at Augusta and hit those shots, you know, it'd be interesting to see if there was a you know, 15 to 20 mile per hour win there. <laughs> and the greens got hard and fast. It would be sporty. But the quality of that event, I think, has been so interesting. And it goes in line with how they run the real masters actually that's the one thing that you'll always want to be thinking about your relationship with wingfoot i think wingfoot in this country has been the most influential club in the history of american golf because of its relationships with the golf pros and it's a golf club and all the people that wingfoot has mentored all these young kids that come and go on to be great pros at every other club in the country and then they branch out from there. I, I believe Wingfoot has changed the course of golf more than any club uh, in America. When you look at the pros that they've had, system pros and gone on to be great pros and great players all over the place. And I remember when I was there last time asking some of the pros, how often do you play? They go, oh, three, four times a week. I don't play three or four times a season. You know, and so another little feather in your cap, you know, Katie, PGA Merchandiser of the Year. She came there as a 22-year-old intern, right? Now she's, she's a PGA she's Merchandiser terrific. of the Year. That says a lot for the club. That says a lot for the people there. So I think Wingfoot has influenced golf, not modern-day golf the way it is now because clubs are different. And I get all that. I work at one that's different. But Wingfoot has had more influence on the real golfers, in my opinion, than any club I've ever been around. Nothing's even close to it. They and it to did all of that without a driving range. Unbelievable. <laughs> the worst driving range. <laughs> this has been extra special, Billy. Thanks, I don't guys. know how it could be extra special after we did the three episodes yeah. earlier last year. I just, uh, you keep amazing. And we have so many people that are asking us, when's Billy coming back? I ah, well, I can't wait to get back. I'm the lefty you can bring out of the bullpen when you don't have any other guests. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to the Two show Adder. and hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified Movie classics. new episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard job. and hit them off. That's 36 holes.